saw the discussion about Hurricane Florence this week, I was reminded of a quote that I remember hearing on August the 28th, 2005. It went like this. It said, this is a once-in-a-lifetime event. Ladies and gentlemen, we are facing the storm that we have long feared. Mayor Ray Nagin, the mayor of New Orleans, was the one who said that in the path of Hurricane Katrina in 2005. And I remember realizing what people in New Orleans realize is that the city sat sort of below sea level and was kept dry by only the sort of barely tall enough levees that surrounded the city. So that when when Katrina came up packing nuclear strength winds, it was pushing with it just a wall of water that in some places was 25, 30 feet tall. And of course, the levees never stood a chance. But what I want you to remember this morning is the sound of desperation that was in these people's voices as the officials beg and plead with the doubters before the storm makes landfall. Unless you brace yourself for what's coming, you're not going to survive. And in the days to follow, we found exactly what happened and the price people paid for not heeding that call. Well, I mentioned that because throughout the history of the church, Christians have often reported that prior to their believing, they had a sensation that they were being prepped for the event. C.S. Lewis, before his own conversion, would say that he felt as if there was a hound of heaven nipping at his heels on the way to the cross and to Jesus. What is it that they're talking about? I think they're talking about the fact of what John the Baptist is saying. And that is there's this sense of urgency, almost desperation in his voice. As he says to these people, there is a storm coming. And unless you prepare yourself to be in the proper posture for that storm, you're not going to survive it. Failure to brace yourself for this storm will result in the most dire of consequences. And so we're looking this semester, uh, and actually for the next few months, at this question in the Gospel of Luke of what it might be that generations of people have found compelling about this Jesus that would cause them to abandon all and follow Him. Well, we find this morning that Jesus is a cataclysm that comes into the life of people who will be most disturbed by it if you love the status quo. (laughs) Jesus is a life quake when he comes into a life. And frankly, it's the life quake that you didn't realize you needed. So what I want to talk about this morning is just two things. I want to look, first of all, at what that posture is, the posture that it takes to receive Jesus. And then number two, what the power is to achieve that. The posture and the power for our discussion. First of all, the posture. I think John is saying that if Jesus is going to come into a life with Katrina-like power, the stance in which we must be is one that he calls repentance. That's the big word there. The topic of John's preaching, as you can see in verse 3, was a baptism of repentance. Now look, in order to really kind of feel the drama of this passage, you have to understand that there were many listeners that John was talking to who actually were looking forward to the storm. You want to know why? Because they didn't think they were going to get hit. You see, the storm that was coming that they thought was coming because of the way they understood where they were in their history. You see, the Jewish people were waiting for a time when God was coming to fix all of the injustices that were being committed against His people. 
That's what the reason for are for those first opening two verses in chapter 3, where Luke is trying to accentuate the fact that these people had languished under the heaviest of political and social oppression. So now, finally, there's a prophet that rises up who announces, drawing off of a prophecy from the book of Isaiah in verses 4 through 6, that his mission was to get you ready, to prepare you for that time at which all flesh would see the salvation of God. And baptism was a symbol of that. In other words, God would eventually intervene in human history. He was finally coming to bring justice. And for a Jewish person, it reminded them of passing through the Red Sea on the way out of Egypt and going through to Sinai, and even again, passing over the Jordan River before they reached the Promised Land. God's people were in slavery again, they thought, and they need a new exodus. Who's going to bring it? But here's the kicker (laughs) and the shock of the passage. John is telling them that they need to be baptized. And you got to understand that for a Jewish person, that would have been like, no. (laughs) Baptism's for those Gentile people out there, right? Um, I mean, not for God's chosen special people. But John is in their face saying, look, you realize your ethnicity, your heritage does not mean squat if it doesn't have what John says are the fruits in keeping with repentance. In other words, this is, I think this is kind of a powerful statement. John the Baptist, from the very beginning of his ministry, is standing up and saying, it does not matter if you have lived your life like Attila the Hun or Billy Graham. Everybody on this playing field is coming in the same way. Everyone. Neither of those groups of people are going to survive if they have not repented and borne fruit of repentance. So it occurs to me that it might be helpful for us to get to the root at what this word means. What does the word repentance mean? Well, the Greek word translated repentance, you may have heard, is the Greek word metanoia, which literally transmitted means a change of mind. It's not so much a change in what you are thinking, that's actually a result of repentance, but it's a change in how your mind is functioning at present. In other words, it's not so much what you're thinking as much as how you are thinking. And so godly repentance requires, I would suggest to you, two things. A change in the way you think about yourself and a change in the way in which you think about your God. First of all, there's got to be a change in the way you think about yourself. Look at verse 8 when John the Baptist says, Hey, look, don't begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. He's touching in this fact that the Jewish people were believing at that moment a certain story about their value before God. That is, they had a view of themselves that was wrapped up in an ethnic heritage, a lineage that went all the way back to the earliest parts of the Old Testament. And John the Baptist is saying, it's all a lie. Because before you, because you, before you come to this God, you've got to realize that none of that means anything. I realize that for a lot of us, it's very easy to be tough on, the, on Jewish people. Uh, but it reminded me a while back of an article I remember reading about 10 years ago when HD television showed up. You know, young people, uh, our televisions didn't always look so crisp and bright and beautiful. It used to be something called standard definition, which if you look at now, you're like, how did you survive with this? An unwatchable material. But back in the old days, when HD television first showed up about 10, 12 years ago, it was actually hugely controversial in Hollywood, mostly from female starlets. Because prior to this time, you know, Hollywood starlets were, got to be really good friends uh, with... Um, 
talented Hollywood cameramen who knew how to sort of shoot you from just the right angle to de-emphasize that nose that you're so uh, self-conscious about. You know, they knew exactly how to sort of, uh, uh, sort of get the right perspective to hide whatever embarrassing feature you didn't want to show at the time. And of course, HD finally started showing us that lo and behold, movie stars have, have pores, you know, and wrinkles and cellulite. Shh. But here's what John is saying. He's looking at his people and he's saying, you have to realize that from the very beginning of the time you were born, it's almost as if you've been committed to being your own sophisticated Hollywood cameraman. You know how we find this way of only letting others, and even ourselves, see ourselves from only the most flattering angles? That is, we regularly leave out these unflattering parts of ourselves for public viewing. Even the memories that our minds retain are those that have been carefully filtered through a little self-serving bias to keep from admitting the worst fear of ourselves. But Paul is adamant. Repentance involves changing the way you think about yourself. Well, how do we do that? Well, I think at least through two things. Number one, we've got to get in touch with what God's Word says about us. I don't know about you, but I feel like for a lot of times when I sort of bounce around with repentance... There are times in which I realize I'm feeling quite guilty about something that, frankly, is not in the Bible. And there's other times in which I'm feeling pretty doggone good about myself, about something that the Bible takes very seriously. In other words, I've got a lot of false guilt and a lot of true guilt in my mind. How do we know which is which? Well, the reason why a Christian immerses himself into God's Word is so he can find out what actually is on God's mind so I can direct the things that I'm supposed to be dealing with. So you never get an accurate picture of yourself unless you're immersed in God's Word to know what it is that He actually says. But if that's all you have, you realize there's still a problem. That is, there's still this internal filter that even is capable of filtering out the rather challenging parts of the Bible that you don't necessarily want to see either. And for that reason, the Word of God needs to be manifest in a community that we call the church. And that church is supposed to be breeding people who love you enough to be able to ask the most dangerous question you could probably ask anybody. Want to know what it is? Go to a friend, and this is not your spouses, by the way, married people, or boyfriends or girlfriends dating people. This is not the person to do this. Too much at risk in that one to ask this question. And the question is, how do I come across to other people? Not how do I wish that I came across to people, but like, How do others really receive me? Ready to get the answer to that question? I'm not. Why? Because suddenly I get a painful accuracy. I get high definition detail about what it is that's really going on with me and the way I come across to others. But John is saying that the path is so valuable. One of my favorite authors is Brene Brown. She tweeted something a couple of months ago that I say for a moment such as this. She said this in the tweet. She goes, you know, you either walk inside your own story and own it, or you stand outside your story and you hustle for your worthiness. You see what she's saying? She says, you can either be honest and vulnerable and accept the ugly truth about yourself, or you can spend the rest of your life pining, pining for worthiness. I started thinking to myself in preparation for this, How much of my daily activity is built around hustling for my worthiness? But what she's saying is, is there is a powerful 
there's a powerful something that comes along when we admit the truth about ourselves. There's power there. Because in the Bible's algebra, the way up is down. We own something first. The way to life is through the death of yourself. It begins there. And so therefore, the first part of repentance is changing my mind about myself. But that's not where it ends. And for a lot of Christians, that's where they've ended it. Most people think, you're right, less repentance is walking around. I feel very bad about myself all the time. No, that's actually remorse. Remorse is feeling bad because you got caught. Repentance, though, is actually changing your mind about the way you view God. And it's probably not what you think. Look what John the Baptist says in the, in the response to these people's false security. He says, look, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. What's his point? His point is, is if all God wanted was a nameless, faceless offspring of the patriarch Abraham, then he would have made us out of rocks. But he didn't, did he? No. What he did was, is he, did some, he wanted to reveal to his people that he wanted to be in relationship with them, that that was what was central. I heard Tim Keller a number of years ago make a great point about Psalm 51. I don't know if you realize it, but Psalm 51 is a poem that King David wrote after so efficiently messing up his life as to almost boggle the mind. So King David, upon writing this poem, had, let's see, um, slept with somebody who he was not married to. Number two, he had gotten her pregnant. Number three, he had seen to the murder of the woman's husband and his friend. And then finally had participated in a massive cover-up of the deed. Hmm, it's a man after God's own heart, right? But then he has the gall in Psalm 51 verse 4 to uncrack this little nugget. Listen to this. Against you, talking to God, and you only have I sinned. What? Um, I don't know. Seems like there's a few more people we could add to that list there, Dave. What do you mean only? How about Bathsheba and Uriah and the child? I mean, there's a long list of people. But I think David is representing something that is very powerful that we often don't get. And that is this, that if there is no God, then there is no difference between a man and a rock. But because there is a God, any sin against him is not just a betrayal of his rules. It's a betrayal of his heart. That there's an emotional component to this. We repent very superficially, which means it bears no fruit, when we're only sorry for getting caught, when we're merely remorseful. But when you suddenly come to realize that my sin is a breaking of someone who longs for me, then suddenly a transformational sorrow comes over. And frankly, it's incredibly counterintuitive. Because prior to this, we would be tempted to believe that repentance is a drudgery. It's time to repent. Sackcloth and ashes. Actually, in the New Testament calculus, repentance is a joy. Because it's a return to someone who really loves you, who really cares about you, and as it turns out, delights in showing mercy. True repentance is a response to the heart of God, not a knee-jerk reaction to getting busted. I hesitated on this illustration, but I asked her for permission. She said, okay. To date, I have not yet had an affair on Ginger, my wife. By God's grace, I assure you it's not for lack of talent. But I start thinking about what it is that keeps you away from the kinds of things that would lead me down that path. 
I began to realize in reflection that a lot of it has to do with the very natural kindness that is wrapped around my wife's face. Those of you who are friends understand this look. And when I try in my mind to wrap around the face of betrayal, in other words, I'm not afraid of what Ginger would do to me if I cheated on her. I'm afraid of seeing her heartbroken. And there's a sense in which that was a powerful, she is a powerful illustration for me of a God who is wrapped in kindness. That we would look as a primary motivation to stay away from sin or repent from where we've been because of His kindness. That in Romans 2 says, leads us to repentance. It's so different. And so John starts diving in and talking about people's money. (laughs) Bear with me. Get used to it, by the way. John starts to do some applications for a sermon with some of these people. And every time, he looks and says things like this. Go and share your excess. You know? Stop being greedy. Start acting ethically in your business practices. Generosity, fairness, honesty. They're all demanded as fruits of repentance. I recognize that for some of you, you may get bugged at this point. Oh, great. Man, I've been to church in a while. Now you're like, huh, the one time I decided to go back, the preacher's up there talking about money. Didn't see that one coming. But here's the deal. Don't think about where you might let your mind go. Because truth of the matter is, if it's just God's arbitrary desire to keep you poverty-stricken, then sure you're going to resent it. Sure you're going to hate that again. If you're begrudgingly maybe writing a check to some inner-city relief agency once a year. But what if God is saying something entirely different? What if He's saying, look, don't you know the riches I've given to you? Can't you see how much I have lavished myself on you and for you? I own the cattle of a thousand hills. Do you really think that I would spare anything that you really needed? I'm here to free you from the slavery of your money and to keep you from defining yourself by your wealth. So leave it. Learn to give it away. Find your wealth in me. That's a completely different approach to repentance, I think. That's radical. It's a different vision of who you're approaching. So repentance is a change in how I view me in vulnerability, but it's a change in the way I view God in grace. So that leads me to the second point, and that is where do we get the power to do this? We've looked at the posture of repentance. Where do we get the power for it? Well, look at verse 18, because I think this is kind of funny. You know, the, the, Luke says, So with many other exhortation, he preached the good news to the people. Good news? I'm sorry, this looked like a whole lot of condemnation. Where's the good news in that? Well, they're not finished yet. There's more to this story that show us the substance of God's lavish riches. And the first one has to do with the fact that Jesus comes to be baptized. We mentioned this briefly last week, but it deserves mentioning again. You know, in the other Gospels, we get a lot of information about when Jesus walks up to John the Baptist, uh, everybody freaks out. Um, or John the Baptist freaks out at Jesus coming. He's like, wait, <laughs> uh, you need to baptize me. Luke doesn't go to that portion. All that we see here is that in that moment when God is beginning His great work among His people through His Son, that Jesus was right with them. So for Luke, it's the association that's the point. That none of what God's people were getting ready to go through, they would have to go through alone. Of course, Jesus doesn't need to be baptized. Of course He doesn't. But He does show to show that He's already developing A deep, symbolic, as it turns out, we'll find out later, a legal 
dare I use the word, contractual connection with his people that we'll learn to call the covenant. Stay tuned. More on that later. But by being baptized himself, Jesus is carrying out the terms of a contract that existed between him and his father and him and his people. What was that? Well, that's my second point. And that is that Jesus comes and gives us the power for repentance by giving access to us for the doting message that he received at his baptism. Again, go back and listen to last week's podcast if you want to get a little more of this. But there's only a few times in the New Testament when God the Father gets to speak. And in every single time, he's doting over his son. And what Jesus is saying is, is here's the way to face the judgment of God. Because of what I am doing on your behalf, your judge can be your father. So that it might as well be, it might as well be that the pronouncement that was made over me at my baptism can be made about you. That's the contract. That's the exchange. In other words, it might as well be that God the Father says, you are my child. In you I am well pleased. How many of you have longed in anguish over the lack of affirmation from bad parents? Only never to get it. And imagine the God of the universe saying, it pleases me. It pleases me to see you. I love you. So here we go. I have a job for somebody. Jeff Bezos, at present, is the richest man in the world. The owner of, of Amazon.com. I think he just came to this position in the last couple of months. Well, Bezos has an executive assistant that works for him. And uh, that assistant is looking for their assistant. But your job is one thing and one thing only. And that is, you have to buy Jeff Bezos a birthday gift and a Christmas gift every year. Anybody interested in that job? What do you buy the richest man in the world ever? How do you bring joy and delight to someone who already has everything? Well, how do you bring joy and delight to the God of the universe who already owns the cattle of a thousand fields? You ready for this? It's you. That God, it's the most famous verse in the Bible, God so loved the world that He gave His Son. What's He saying? He's saying, I feel wealthy when I see what's been done in you. Look, the tax collectors and the soldiers abused money the way they did is because they had set their heart on something way too small. And it's as if God is coming and saying to them, you are my treasure. And because you are, you now have the freedom to give away your riches to what will look like to the rest of the world as a fool's errand. Eye-popping amounts. You've got to be kidding me you're giving your money away to a church. And instead we'll hoard it. What is hoarding? I wish we had time to talk about this. Hoarding seems like it's just a way to tell the world that you don't feel safe. Isn't that funny? But look, because of one powerful act of kindness, one powerful act of kindness, the mercy that sort of gets planted in the life of a person can change them forever in the way they look at everything. It reminded me of one of my favorite passages from Victor Hugo's book, Les Miserables. And, of course, we've seen the movie. We've watched the, the stage play. But if you don't know, the, the whole story is about the escaped prisoner Jean Valjean, 
who upon his escape in the very early part of the book ends up racing to a kindly bishop's home. Well, while he's there, he decides he's going to take advantage of the situation and steals a candlestick and some silver and makes his escape, but he's quickly found by the police and interrogated. Well, the bishop comes out in order to sort of interrupt the interview and ends up, instead of accusing Valjean, says, actually, no, to the police, he's my friend. And you know what? Actually, I think you forgot one of the candlesticks, Valjean, and gave him the rest of the silver and sends him on his way. If you know anything about the story, the, the, the experience was incredibly powerful for Valjean. Well, later on in life, Valjean has assumed a false identity to hide his former criminal, criminal life as Monsieur Madeleine, who was the kindly mayor of a small little French hamlet. Well, to his surprise, he finds out one day that a man has been dragged into court who the court thinks is the real Jean Valjean. And they accuse him of being him and ready to put him back in jail. And so Valjean sits in the courtroom and wonders what he's supposed to do. Does he save himself and let the poor victim go to jail? Or does he reveal his true identity as the real Valjean and save the man but face judgment himself? Well, the night before the wrongly accused man's sentence, Valjean can't stop thinking about it. He's awake all night. And all he thinks about is the kindly bishop. Here's how Victor Hugo puts it. He says, in that night, he felt the presence of the bishop, more urgent even than in life. He felt the old priest's eyes upon him and knew that henceforth, Monsieur Madeleine, the mayor, with all his virtues, would seem to him abominable. Whereas Jean Valjean, the villain, would be admirable and pure. Other men would see the mask, but the bishop would see the face. Others would see the life, but he would see the soul. So there was nothing for it but to go to court and rescue the false Jean Valjean by proclaiming the true one. The most heart-rending of sacrifices, the most poignant of victories, the ultimate irretrievable step. But it had to be done. And this is the line that blew me away. It was his most melancholy destiny that he could achieve sanctity in the eyes of God only by returning to degradation in the eyes of men. But that last sentence there is the entirety of the lesson this morning. I know that it feels like a melancholy destiny to talk about owning your sin, to stop being so defensive about your failures. But it's only in that posture of laying down false pretenses, which quite honestly, trying to manage is exhausting to return to an honest life. It's only in that posture that Jesus is received with joy. And by the way, if you're thinking to yourself, no, really, I'm glad glad that Les is going after all the sinners in the room. If you're thinking that you're beyond this, please understand that the Protestant Reformation was begun when Martin Luther nailed up his 95 theses to the door at Wittenberg. You know what the first of those theses was? I'm going to read it to you. He said, When our Lord, Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. The whole life is one of repentance. It's a posture of humble dependence upon a God who loves you. So what's holding you back this morning? How's that pride working for you? How exhausting is it to manage those parts of your life? Because you know... Jean Valjean had a kindly priest who, through one act of mercy on his behalf, changed his life. But you know what you have? You have a great high priest 
who has demonstrated an astounding, breathtaking act of mercy on your behalf. To put you in a posture of being ready to receive. So are you? Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, would you grant to us the kindness and the grace of repentance that we might know the joy of returning to a Father who loves us. For some of us, Father, it is time number three million to repent, and we are grateful for the grace. For others, it may be their very first time. Would you walk them into that freedom even this morning as we sing our final song? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.